Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. I'm excited to begin a new series this morning that will take us throughout the entire fall. I will uh, get done the end of November and then we'll do a short Christmas series in December. And we will spend this fall in Revelation chapters 1 through 3, looking primarily at chapters 2 and 3 at the letters to the seven churches. Now, the truth is, I've never done that much preaching from the book of Revelation, which is strange because everyone says that if you want a lot of people to show up, preach on the book of Revelation. But the truth is, and I, I hate to say this, but to be honest with you, there was a long period of time in my life in which I, I had a bit of a, a bad attitude toward the book of Revelation. And I think it's because that in every church I've ever been in, there's always been those end times people. Do you know who I'm talking about? That this is just kind of their deal. They love the graphs and the charts and they read the books and go to the conferences. They spend hours and hours and hours trying to figure out that one thing that Jesus said, don't worry about. Don't worry about the times or the seasons. Just be ready for my coming but yet there's just always in every church I've been in this one group that just loves to try to figure out the end times. But all of that kind of changed in my heart, my attitude toward the book of Revelation, one fall day on a road trip with my soon-to-be father-in-law. I was about a month from marrying Andrea, and her dad said to me, I need to go up to see my mom in North Carolina. Why don't you come with me? I couldn't say no. It was his opportunity to get me in a car, to drive fast, to lock the doors for about six hours, and just hold me hostage, and that's exactly what he did. I would love to say that we made small talk in that conversation, but my father-in-law doesn't make small talk. He only talks if it's something intentional, and he was making some intentional conversation. One of the questions he asked me was this. He said, what's your, what's your favorite book of the Bible? I quickly said, well, I, probably Ephesians. I love the book of Ephesians. And I went on and on about why I love the book of Ephesians. Then I asked him, I said, well, what's your favorite book of the Bible? He said, well, mine is the book of Revelation. And I said, that's funny. I, I've never been really a big fan of the book of Revelation. There's just so many visions and kind of weird things in there, and I've never known exactly what to do with it. To which he responded, well, you would only love the book of Revelation if you loved Jesus. <laughs> he said, the book of Revelation is not primarily about events. The book of Revelation is about a person. The book of Revelation is about the glory of Jesus Christ. And if you love Jesus, you will love the book of Revelation. To which I responded exactly that's why it's like my second favorite book in the Bible. It's like Ephesians, Revelation. I'd really never thought of it that way. I, I'd always been kind of caught up in all the events and the symbolism and the charts and the graphs and the numbers, but it says it in the first five words of this book. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is from him and it is about him. The last vision we get of Jesus is in Acts chapter one when he is ascending to the Father up into the heavenly places and it is really not until the book of Revelation that we get another clear picture of him. Not as Jesus was, but as he is. This book exists to give us a fresh vision of Christ. And even from the very first verses, you can see it over and over. He 
tells us in verse four, this is the one who is and who was and who is to come. In verse five, he is the firstborn of the dead, meaning the first one to rise from the dead because we will come after him. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood to make us into a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. He is the one, verse six, to whom all glory and all dominion belongs forever. In verse eight, he is the alpha and the omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come. He is the almighty. Right there, just in the first eight verses of the book of Revelation, it is clear that what is about to happen in this book is that we are about to get a fresh vision of Christ. What I love about the book of Revelation as well is that if you read through the New Testament, the two primary themes of the New Testament are the supremacy of Christ and the centrality of the church. The supremacy of Christ. He is all in all. Everything is from him and through him and to him, Colossians 1. He is to be preeminent, first place in all things. That everything exists for Christ. Jesus Christ is all. That's why we come here every single Sunday and through our songs and our preaching, we make much of Jesus. But not only the supremacy of Christ, but the centrality of the church, that the church is the plan of Jesus. That it is God's intention that you come to know him and that after you come and know him, you get plugged into a local church where it is there that you learn how to function in your gifting, that you work together because the church is the body of Christ left on earth as Christ is in heaven. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. Jesus has one plan until he returns and that is the church of Jesus Christ. The supremacy of Christ, the centrality of the church and I'm not sure any place in all of scripture where those come together more clearly than in Revelation one through three. The supremacy of Christ and the centrality of the church. This is a book of visions. And this book gives us a fresh vision of Christ and his supremacy and a fresh vision of the church in its centrality. And so we will spend most of our time in chapters two and three and we will look week by week at every one of the letters to the churches. But in order for us to understand that, we must first understand what it is that John is writing in verses nine through 20 of chapter one. And so what I'm gonna do this morning, I'm gonna ask that you follow with me. I'm gonna simply start in verse nine and walk through all the way to the end of the chapter from verses nine to 20. And then when we come to the end, I will help us to see what it is that we must see before we go on next week to chapter two. Look at verse nine. John, he says, is writing as your brother and your partner in the tribulations and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Here is John, because of his faith in Jesus Christ, as an apostle, has been isolated to an island of Patmos where he is a prisoner unable to escape. And he is there writing to suffering, persecuted, hurting churches in which he identifies with them by using two words in verse nine. I am writing as your brother and as your partner. Now I love this because in those two words, we can describe what the church of Jesus Christ is to be. First of all, the church is a family. 
It's made up of brothers and sisters in Christ, united in one Father, because Jesus Christ has purchased us and brought us to the Father. We have been adopted into the family of God. Therefore, we come together as a family. But then he uses that same word from Philippians 4.14 that we spent our entire week on last week that I said is the greatest word to help us to understand what it means to be a member of a church. I am your brother and I am your partner. We're not only family, we're co-laborers. We share the same gospel. We share the same vision. We share the same mission. We are partners in the gospel. And he says this, I'm writing to you as your brother, as a fellow family member. I'm also writing to you as your partner in, look at what it says, in tribulation. I'm sharing with you in your suffering. I'm suffering, you're suffering, we're both suffering for the sake of the gospel. We are partners in tribulation and suffering. We are partners in the kingdom, he says. We, we are partners in the kingdom. We have both received Jesus Christ as our king. We are consumed with the kingdom, citizens of the kingdom, advancing the kingdom of God. And we are partners in patient endurance. Meaning that we are partners in just enduring the effects of sin in this world, enduring the suffering and the conflict, hoping in the promise of the return of Jesus Christ who will rescue us. We are brothers, we are family, we are partners, we are co-laborers. He identifies himself with them. And then he says this in verse 10. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Meaning he was worshiping. He was by himself, he was praying, he was spending time with the Lord. And then all of a sudden, as he is spending time with the Lord, alone in isolation, here's what happens. He says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. It wasn't a trumpet, it was a voice. But all throughout the book of John, John is going to have to describe things, and he can only describe things in words that he knows or understands. He has experienced certain things, and when he thinks about the sound of this voice, the way he describes it is like the sound of a loud trumpet blowing. So if you're worshiping the Lord, you're in silence, you're there spending time alone with Jesus, and you hear a voice behind you like the sound of a trumpet, it startles you and gets your attention. So imagine what he's experiencing in this moment when he hears this roaring sound behind him, and here's what the voice says, verse 11. Right what you see in a book. This is a book of visions. He's gonna see things, write them in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And that's what we're gonna look at in chapters two and three. I'm gonna show you some things and I want you to take what you have seen and I want you to write it down and then I want you to deliver this to the churches. So it's not simply chapters two and three that is a message to the church. What he sees right here in chapter one is also a part of what he is to deliver to the churches. This vision is significant for the church. Now, he does something quite courageous in verse 12. As he has heard this incredible voice behind him declaring him to write down what he sees, startling him and getting his attention like the sound of a loud trumpet, John turns to see the voice that was speaking to him. And as he turns, here is what he sees. The first thing he sees in verse 12 is he sees seven golden lampstands. Now, 
this is a vision. We have to picture this in our minds. I want you to picture maybe something more beautiful and more elegant, certainly, but something like a tiki torch where there's this long stand and at the top of it is a flame. There's fire. And here are seven golden lampstands, seven tall golden stands, each of them containing fire at the top of it. So immediately you get a picture of what he saw is all of the fire and the glowing of the fire and the smoke of the fire and the smell of the fire, seven of those lampstands all around. But it says that in the middle of the lampstand, he sees, verse 13, in the midst of them one like a son of man. There are seven lampstands surrounding him, all of them containing fire. And right in the middle of the lampstand, John turns and he sees a man. He says it's one like the son of man. That's a picture of what Daniel describes for us in Daniel chapter 7. When Daniel gives a prophecy that one day there will be someone who will come like a son of man. And he will be a king who will have an everlasting dominion over all. There will be someone who comes and conquers all kings and all kingdoms. He will establish a kingdom that never ends. He will be the king over all the kings. He will have authority over every nation, over every language, over every people. There will be one king that is coming. And every other king will bow down to that one king. And he will be the son of man. So John turns and he sees someone like the Son of Man, meaning someone who appears like a king. And that's clear from what he sees next. He is clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Continue to picture it. Seven golden lampstands all containing fire. And here's a man standing in a long robe with a golden sash going around his chest. It is clearly a picture of royalty. It is clearly a picture of authority. If we were to see someone who is standing with a long robe and a scepter and a crown, we would immediately say that is some sort of king. So it is that John turns around and he sees a man that he knows is clearly a king. He is one like the son of man, like that promised one from Daniel 7. He is clothed like a king in his robe and the golden sash, a picture of ultimate authority. This is certainly a king. But this is unlike any king that John has ever seen, and it is unlike any king that we have ever seen. He says that he has this golden sash around his chest, and then he describes his hair in verse 14. The hair of his head were white, like white wool and like snow. Now, the only way that John can describe things are with things that he has seen before. John has never seen neon. He has never seen LED lights. He's never seen anything like that, but what John has seen is he has seen something that is white like wool, and he has also seen what it's like to walk outside on a winter morning when the ground is covered in snow, but the sun has come out to such an extent that the sun reflecting on the snow creates a light so bright that you can hardly stand it. And the only words that John knows to communicate the brightest possible white that has ever been experienced, this glimmering, glowing, sparkling, radiant, shining light is to say, it is almost like the sun reflecting off of the whiteness of the snow. This is what his hair looks like. His hair is beaming with white light. And then it says in verse 14, his eyes were like flames of fire. 
So his hair is glowing because of the brightness of the white. And coming out of his eyes was, was fire. There was flames in his eyes. And there is not only fire surrounding him, his hair is not only radiating, but out of his eyes, it says, is coming fire. There is this piercing gaze. He sees all. You cannot hide from his sight. There is almost something terrifying about his gaze. He goes on to say in verse 15 that his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Now imagine if you've ever seen anybody welding and you see uh, metal that is heated up and the light that comes from it, it is like this glowing yellow and gold. And so it is that his entire feet were like burnished bronze refined by fire. So his feet were glowing. His feet were radiating with this golden and yellow light that appeared as it was fire. His hair is shining. His eyes are like fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. They too are glowing. And then it said his voice was like the roar of many waters. Now all of a sudden we go from not only seeing something, but we go to feeling something. I've been to the Iguazu Falls, the largest waterfall system in all of the world on the border of South and Argentina. And I've walked all around those falls. I've even gotten in a boat and taken that boat as close to the falls as you can possibly get. And what happens when you get that close is not only that you're hearing a sound like you've never heard before, where you literally cannot talk to the person next to you and them hear you, but you feel something in that moment. That the sound actually feels heavy. That there's this weightiness that comes upon you as if you feel like you might get crushed by the weight of the sound. The sound is so loud, the sound is so heavy, you can actually feel it in your heart. And you have no desire to get closer to it because it is very clear by the sound of the water that you would be crushed under the weight of it. And so this is not only is that everything about him glowing and everything's to be on fire, but yet his voice gives a certain weight to the entire situation. It is as if when he speaks, you could be crushed by the weight of his voice. Verse 16 says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. So his hair is glowing, his eyes are glowing, his feet are glowing, his voice brings a weightiness to it, and in his hand, he is holding seven stars, so out in his hand is also this beaming and glowing light of stars. It says that from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, communicating the fact that when he speaks, his word not only comes with weight, his word goes directly into our heart and our soul. And it is almost as if everything is culminating into the last little phrase of verse 16. As if we can not possibly get a greater picture of the brightness coming from this sight with all of the lampstands containing fire, with his hair, with his eyes, with what is held in his hand, with his feet. Then the ultimate description is in the last words of 16 when it says, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John having nothing to communicate except what he has experienced. And there is nothing that John has ever experienced, nor is there anything we have ever experienced, that is brighter than the sun in its full strength. And John says, when I turned around and looked 
at the man standing there. Not only did I see him surrounded by fire, but I saw his entire body on fire from his hair to his feet. And his entire face was shining with a light as if it came from the sun in full strength. You say, well, what is it that John is seeing? What John is seeing in that moment is a vision of Jesus Christ in blazing splendor. It is as Psalm 145 says, the glorious splendor of his majesty is being revealed in that moment. This is the risen, ascended, ruling and reigning king of kings who is radiating with an incomparable glory. And when you see it, you're not only overwhelmed by the sight of it, you actually feel the weight of all of the power in the universe of all of the authority in the universe, of all of the perfection and all of the holiness and all of the greatness, all found in one person and the weight of all of that glory and all of that perfection and every ounce of power that exists in the universe in one single man. Your only response is John's response in verse 17 that when he saw it, he fell at his feet as though dead. This is why when Moses said, Lord, I want to see your glory, Moses said, you can't handle my glory. If you saw my glory, you would die. John sees this vision of Christ and the weight is so heavy, it is so overwhelming that he simply falls down as dead. Now listen to me. This is not meant to be a description of the physical body of Jesus. It is not that Jesus right now has a sword coming out of his mouth and his eyes are on fire. This is meant to be a picture of who Jesus is. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end and everything in between. He is the ruler over all things, all power, and all dominion belongs to him. He sees all. He knows all. He rules over all. He holds all in his hand. As Hebrews 1 says, he is in fact the radiance of the glory of God. All of the glory of God placed upon Jesus Christ. He is in fact ablaze with perfection and beauty and holiness and power, all of that resting upon Christ. It is a picture of who he is. Before we ever get to letters in the churches, John wants to make sure that the church understands who it is that is writing to them. Now, as if you couldn't experience anything more terrifying than John is already experiencing, something more terrifying happens in verse 17. That as John, imagine what he has just seen, overwhelmed by the full weight of the very glory of God, falls on his face as dead, and then the only thing that could be more terrifying is that he feels, while he's alone, a hand placed upon him. He laid his right hand on me. And here's what he said. Fear not. The actual translation of that phrase in the Greek would be this. Jesus came to John, put his hand upon him and said, do not ever be afraid again. Do not ever be afraid again. Why? Because Jesus says, Because I am the first and I am the last. 
He says, do not be afraid because I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, he is saying to John, if it is true that I am who I say I am, that I am the beginning and the end, that all of the power and all of the glory and all of the authority belongs to me and you also belong to me, then you never have to be afraid again. Church, you never have to be afraid again. If you are not on his side, you should be terrified of him. Because he will, as the end of the story tells us, come back and destroy all of his enemies. He will be covered in blood, but it will not be his blood from his crucifixion. It will be the blood of his enemies who he has destroyed. There is coming a day in which God will declare his justice by sending Jesus Christ to destroy his enemies. But if you are his, you never have to be He says to a suffering, discouraged, almost defeated, overwhelmed church who is convinced that they may never get out of this world, that they may never see victory. He says to them, do not ever be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. He is saying to John, John, you have seen me before. You saw me in my earthly life, and you saw me in my death. You even saw me in my resurrection, but you have never seen me like this. You have never seen me in all of my glory and all of my splendor. So, John, I want to make sure the picture you have of me is not an outdated picture. This is the picture you need to have. And then he says, write this down and send it to the church. This is a vision of Jesus that the church needs. He's saying, send it to those who you're partnering with in tribulation and the kingdom and endurance. They need in the midst of their circumstances a fresh vision of Jesus Christ. They need to know that they will not be defeated and humiliated forever because I am on their side. Do you remember those, those lampstands? Do you remember the stars? Look at verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, and here he's gonna describe this for us. Well, we don't get answers to all of the symbols in the book of Revelation, but we get these because these are essential for us. He says this, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, I don't know what these are. They're not pastors. Some people say they're they're not pastors. They are angelic beings of some sort that have been given to the church to watch over the church, to help the church. In some way, these are angelic beings that God has given to the church. He says those stars represent these seven angels of the seven churches, and here it is. And the seven lampstands, what are all those lampstands? They are the seven churches. And they're symbolic not simply of seven churches in Asia Minor years ago. They are symbolic of all churches of all time. The picture here is of Christ in all of his glory and the church over here as these lampstands in which Jesus in the center of them. And here at the end of verse 20, we have two massive implications of this. The first is this, is that Jesus is in the midst of the churches. That Jesus is overseeing the churches. He is ruling the churches. He is watching over the churches. 
that Jesus is in the midst saying to the churches, listen, I am with you. Do not ever be afraid. But the greatest implication may be this. The fact that Jesus could have used any picture he wanted to describe the church, but yet what he uses is holder of the flame, while at the same time describing Jesus to us from his head to his feet, completely on fire. What he's communicating is this, is the church exists to be ablaze with the fire of God's glory. It is the church which contains the fire of God's glory that exists to be the place where his glory is experienced and displayed. God's blazing glory does not rest in a temple or in a tabernacle. His glory rests upon the people of God who are gathered together in the church so that together each one of us, holy and pure, walking with Jesus, with the fire of the Spirit inside of us, might gather together and be a blazing fire and a picture of the glory of Jesus himself. We are the holders of the fire of the glory of Christ. What is it that John wants us to see as we come to the end of Revelation 1? It is simply this. He wants us to see that Christ is more glorious than we think and the church is more important than we think. Christ is more glorious than we think and the church is more important than we think. Let me say a couple of things about this. Christ is more glorious than we think. Now, I I would imagine this is not the normal vision you have of Jesus Christ. You may see Jesus like a baby in a manger. You may see him as a a hippie-looking revolutionary in Galilee. You may see him as a crucified criminal. You may even see him in his resurrection. Those are all good and right pictures of Jesus. But as I said a moment ago, the problem is they are outdated pictures of Jesus. He is no longer a baby in a manger. He is no longer a long-haired hippie in Galilee. He is no longer a crucified savior. He is the ruling and reigning king of kings ablaze with the glory of God. That's the vision we need of Jesus. And when the church gets that vision of Jesus, the church begins to see Jesus differently. They begin to see their sin differently. They begin to see this life differently, that Jesus is more glorious than we ever imagined. And A.W. Tozer says this. He says, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you because your vision of Jesus will determine everything else in your life. Christ is more glorious than we've ever imagined. But listen to the second part of that. The church is more important than we ever imagined. You say, well, why does the church matter so much? Let me give you one reason, because Jesus matters so much. The only reason the church matters is because Jesus matters. It says in verse five that he has loved us and freed us by his blood and brought us into his kingdom. He has gathered us in an identifiable group of believers that through us he might display his glory. We do not play church. You don't give church a little bit of your time. This is not a secondary issue in your life that gets bumped anytime it rains or something in the family interrupts it. We exist to be gathered in a church that we as a church might be ablaze with the glory of Christ. We will not play church. 
we will get a fresh vision of Christ and a fresh vision of the church, which shows us that we exist as a people to be ablaze with his glory. And it is with this in mind that John writes some letters to the church in which he affirms them for some things they're doing well and then tells them some things they are not doing well. You say, why does it matter that we confront sin in the church? Because sin in the church dims the light of the glory of God through the church. Why is it that we need to have an identifiable membership so we know who's in and we know who's out? Because those who are in, although continually sinful, are striving to walk with Jesus because the church matters. He says, listen, I want you to be everything God has called you to be. I want to call you into greater love and holiness and endurance and worship and courage. Because you're more important than you ever imagined. And every single letter ends with these words. Let those who have an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So let me end with this. Listen carefully. We want, as a church, to be ablaze with the glory of God. We want people to come in contact with us and to walk into this church and feel the weight of the glory of God, to see something of his glory through us. And so every single letter we're gonna walk through all throughout the fall is with that goal. God, we want to see you in your glory and we want to be ablaze with your glory. We do not want to settle for less than that. We do not want to go through this life playing church when we exist to display the very glory of God. We will walk through Revelation 1 through 3. We will spend 10 weeks. We will spend a total of 70 days. And here's what I want to call us to. I want us to call us to listen. To listen. Because in every one of these letters, God is going to reveal something to us that could be diminishing the fire of God's glory in our church. So I'm going to give you two responses. The first one is this. I'm going to ask you to consider for the next 70 days while we're walking through this series to fast and pray at some point that we might hear as a church everything God wants us to hear. I don't know what God wants us to say, but I know he wants to say something. And none of this matters unless we have ears to hear. You say, well, how do we be sensitive to hearing? Well, God has given us a way that as we pray and fast, we step back and say, God, I'm gonna just separate myself here for a moment to hear what it is you're saying to us. So you're gonna go home this afternoon and you're gonna get on the church website and you're gonna see right there at the very center there, a place that says prayer and fasting, you're gonna click on that. Listen, it's gonna have a place for you to sign up for a half day, a day, whatever, throughout the next 70 days. You may say, I'm gonna fast every Monday. I'm gonna fast every Saturday. I'm gonna fast every Wednesday. I'm gonna fast twice during the seven days, whatever it is. And you can see on there if someone is taking a day or not. Our goal is to have at least one person fasting every single day for the next 70 days. Why? Because we're hungry to hear what God wants us to hear. There are all kinds of helps and resources there to help you to know how to fast. You may have never done that before, but we're gonna do it because we want to listen. The second response is this, is we're just gonna start this morning. If you just, if you just feel in your heart a desire to not settle for playing church, which some of you are doing, but you want to be all in, you want to be a part of God's plan because you're outside of the church, you're not in God's plan, you wanna be all in. Let's just pray this morning that God would begin a work today of revealing himself, of showing himself, of setting us ablaze with his
Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.